Chapter Six of The Death of the Lion. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Death of the Lion by Henry James. Chapter Six. A week later, early in May, my glorified friend came up to town, where it may be veraciously recorded he was the king of the beasts of the year. No advancement was ever more rapid, no exultation more complete, no bewilderment more teachable. His books sold but moderately, though the article in the Empire had done unwonted wonders for it. But he circulated in person to a measure that the libraries might well have envied. His formula had been found. He was a revelation. His momentary terror had been real, just as mine had been, the overclouding of his passionate desire to be left to finish his work. He was far from unsociable, but he had the finest conception of being let alone that I've ever met. For the time, none the less, he took his profit where it seemed most to crowd on him, having in his pocket the portable sophistries about the nature of the artist's task. Observation, too, was a kind of work, and experience a kind of success. London dinners were all material, and London ladies were fruitful toil. No one has the faintest conception of what I'm trying for, he said to me, and not many have read three pages that I've written. But I must dine with them first. They'll find out why when they've time. It was rather rude justice, perhaps, but the fatigue had the merit of being a new sort, while the phantasmagoric town was probably, after all, less of a battlefield than the haunted study. He once told me that he had had no personal life to speak of since his fortieth year, but had had more than was good for him before. London closed the parenthesis and exhibited him in relations. One of the most inevitable of these being that in which he found himself to Mrs. Weeks Wimbush, wife of the boundless brewer and proprietress of the Universal Menagerie. In this establishment, as everybody knows, on occasions when the crush is great, the animals rub shoulders freely with the spectators, and the lions sit down for whole evenings with the lambs. It had been ominously clear to me from the first that in Neil Paraday this lady, who as all the world agreed was tremendous fun, considered that she had secured a prime attraction, a creature of almost heraldic oddity. Nothing could exceed her enthusiasm over her capture, and nothing could exceed the confused apprehensions it excited in me. I had an instinctive fear of her, which I tried without effect to conceal from her victim, but which I let her notice with perfect impunity. Paraday heeded it, but she never did, for her conscience was that of a romping child. She was a blind, violent force to which I could attach no more idea of responsibility than to the creaking of a sign in the wind. It was difficult to say what she conduced to but circulation. She was constructed of steel and leather, and all I asked of her for our tractable friend was not to do him to death. He had consented for a time to be of India rubber, but my thoughts were fixed on the day he should resume his shape, or at least get back into his box. It was evidently all right, but I should be glad when it was well over. I had a special fear, 
The impression was ineffaceable of the hour when, after Mr. Morrow's departure, I had found him on the sofa in his study. That pretext of indisposition had not in the least been meant as a snub to the envoy of the tattler. He had gone to lie down in very truth. He had felt a pang of his old pain, the result of the agitation wrought in him by this forcing open of a new period. His old program, his old ideal even, had to be changed. Say what one would, success was a complication and recognition had to be reciprocal. The monastic life, the pious illumination of the missal in the convent cell, were things of the gathered past. It didn't engender despair, but at least it required adjustment. Before I left him on that occasion we had passed a bargain, my part of which was that I should make it my business to take care of him. Let whoever would represent the interest in his presence, I must have had a mystical prevision of Mrs. Weeks Wimbush, I should represent the interest in his work, or otherwise expressed in his absence. These two interests were in their essence opposed, and I doubt, as youth is fleeting, if I shall ever again know the intensity of joy with which I felt that in so good a cause I was willing to make myself odious. One day in Sloane Street I found myself questioning Paraday's landlord, who had come to the door in answer to my knock. Two vehicles, a barouche and a smart hansom, were drawn up before the house. "'In the drawing-room, sir? Mrs. Weeks Wimbush. "'And in the dining-room? A young lady, sir, waiting, I think a foreigner.' "'It was three o'clock, and on days when Paraday didn't lunch out "'he attached a value to these appropriated hours. "'On which days, however, didn't the dear man lunch out? "'Mrs. Wimbush, at such a crisis, would have rushed round "'immediately after her own repast.' I went into the dining-room first, postponing the pleasure of seeing how, upstairs, the lady of the barouche would, on my arrival, point the moral of my sweet solitude. No one took such an interest as herself in his doing only what was good for him, and she was always on the spot to see that he did it. She made appointments with him to discuss the best means of economizing his time and protecting his privacy. She further made his health her special business, and had so much sympathy with my own zeal for it, that she was the author of pleasing fictions on the subject of what my devotion had led me to give up. I gave up nothing, I don't count Mr. Pinhorn, because I had nothing, and all I had as yet achieved was to find myself also in the menagerie. I had dashed in to save my friend, but I had only got domesticated and wedged, so that I could do little more for him than exchange with him over people's heads looks of intense but futile intelligence. End of chapter 6